Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Security in the Next Decade podcast. I'm Sammy Miguez. And I'm Drew Kilborn. Together, we have about 60 years of experience in the software and security spaces. This is where we talk with industry leaders about the cybersecurity challenges waiting for all of us just over the horizon. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce our friend, Dr. Lisa Bradley. Lisa is a distinguished cybersecurity expert and visionary leader currently serving as the Senior Director of Product and Application Security at Dell Technologies. With an impressive record spanning over two decades in enterprise-class engineering and leadership, and as a major contributor to the first Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams, PCERT Services Framework, she has earned her reputation as a trailblazer in the field of security and vulnerability management. In her current role, she oversees Dell's Product Security Incident Response Team, Bug Bounty, SBOM, Dependency Management, and Security Champion and Training Programs. With over a decade of PCERT leadership, including running programs at NVIDIA and IBM, she is a sought-after speaker at top tech events like FIRST, B-Sides, B-SIM, DerbyCon, DEFCON, and ISACA. Outside of her professional life, Lisa enjoys quality time with her three children and participates in cybersecurity podcasts like the Security Unhappy Hour. Dr. Bradley's unwavering dedication to cybersecurity and her extensive industry experience make her a leading figure in the ever-evolving landscape of technology and cyber defense, fostering trust and innovation. Lisa, it's really great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. So let, let's jump right in. I mean, you're an experienced cybersecurity professional who's seen a lot of change over the years. So from your perspective, what are some of the events, some of the innovations that have led us to the broad state of cybersecurity that we have today, whether, whether for good or for bad? So I always like to talk about um, my journey and what uh, I call high profile. Um, so I think for me, one of the biggest things that that changed and and it's always like you always um, never waste a good crisis. Yeah. So um, Heartbleed was one of the first ones that I dealt with back in uh, 2014. And um, Heartbleed is some home branded vulnerabilities. Um, they have a fun name or a logo. There's actually a, a, a cool one um, that it like it doesn't even name. It's just an emoji. Um, uh, that that one was pretty cool. A researcher did too. But but after Heartbleed, um, there was a to me a, a cycle of you know Poodle and Shell Shock, and then of course um, you know it faded out maybe a little bit, and then Vector of Meltdown came, and then we had Log for Shell, and you know uh, there's all these fun named uh, uh, branded vulnerabilities. Um, and some are names that uh, really shouldn't have gotten a name and, uh, you know, and the media went a little crazy, but um, some of them are actually really important and I think changed like the history of, you know, um, wh where we were and now where we're at and where we're going. So I like to think about like um, Heartbleed sort of was the one that said, oh, hey, do we use OpenSSL? And then like the next... Uh, bigger one was like oh I think we use this where do we use it and then you know so it just sort of was an evolvement because like 
a lot of companies didn't even know what open source they were utilizing and packages and they were utilizing like 15,000 packages um, or, or so. So, so that's sort of like one of the things that I think has changed the least in the product security space. Um, you know, for better or for worse, um, with some of the named named uh, and and high profile uh, vulnerabilities, but um, a lot for me, it's it changed a lot for me in my journey. So, so am I the one? Am I the only one who calls them? You know, like celebrity events because we give them names and we put them in the newspaper. <laughs> I mean, do, do do you your team? Does anybody else think of it that way? Uh, I we well, there was actually a researcher that hired a PR. Um, uh, yeah, PR person to help, help him with, uh, his, which is, is quite crazy, but yes, oh my. Uh, so that celebrity is a good name. Um, yeah, y- y- you know, we look for it in the sense of like, um, can it be, can it, or is it being actively exploited? Is there proof of concept code? You know, is there high media attention? Is there going to be a lot of customer attention? You know, um, because it, it's actually really expensive. These could actually end up being very expensive to a company, not only to address the vulnerability, to, to deal with the customer um, inquiries that come come in, which is why, you know, if I have a love-hate relationship with, with these type of things, and I'll probably say love-hate a few times and, and when we talk here, because that's how I feel like with a lot of things in security. It's like, you love it because it did this, but then you hate it because of this side. But um. Some of the the named ones, you know, caused a lot of stir, but you know they were really hard to exploit, and, and then, uh, you know, and, and so you know you're spending all this time reacting so quickly to something when you probably have, you know, other vulnerabilities that you were working to address that are more easily exploitable, and and that should have gotten more attention, but yeah. That's interesting. Uh, you know, when we when we had Gary McGraw on and we asked him, you know, what was the the biggest thing that had the biggest impact on cybersecurity in the last 10 years, he immediately said ransomware. Okay. And we had never thought about it that way. And it's, it's interesting. So you're going down the same kind of the same road, which is these uh, vulnerabilities that come out of the dark, um, you know, tend to shine enough light that make change. But the question I would have is, you know, when you're running a business as usual shop and you've got your budget set or your staffing set and you've got sort of all those projects from a cyber perspective, you have to do that year testing and implementation of tooling or process and whatnot. And then one of these events comes along. How, how do you manage with an organization of shifting and changing on the fly and finding the resources that you need to pull that off? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. When yeah. one of these things comes along, it just sort of blows up our world. I mean, log for shell was a recent one with log log for J. Um, with Dell, we we were about to take our week off for the holiday, um, you know, end of year break. So we had to have employees stay and work through that week. Um, we had to pull in people, and uh, you know, it, it was it was a lot. Um, I would say, unfortunately, in the world of security. The majority of the time we are reactive we're reacting to some kind of a spike or something like this and the best thing you could do is be prepared for it so um you know back in the day when heartbleed happened i was at actually at ibm and we just had our normal typical business as usual type of processes in that p-cert you know framework that we followed but uh we had to create a whole new playbook for this because nothing like this ever happened to us 
Um, and so, um, you know, and, 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 and now that I'm in Dell, we have the same thing. We have different playbooks for the level of intensity that it, it could, you could get. And I don't want to say severity because it doesn't often map to the severity of like a CVSS score or common vulnerability scoring system, but rather, you know, the, 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 those things that I was saying earlier, how easily exploited is a proof of concept code, things like that. So I would say, um, you know, uh, I don't think you could ever be prepared for this as much as you try to be. Um, I think that it takes a lot of resources and um, it, it, it could stop releases. It could make you do out of band type of fixes. Um, even though you're on your journey, you know, a product to, to, to deliver a new feature, you may have to stop that that work to, because oftentimes the same people coding the features are the ones that are going to be coding this this fix um so um i i think for me it, it's understanding uh, and if you're on the security team understanding what might need to change in your process for something like this because typically we set policies of how quickly to address the vulnerability within a company and this you sort of have to you're making it up as you go in a way is that you're you're looking at all the facts around you and even though it can be formulated right into a calculation but you're figuring out how quickly do you need to address it and and how how hard are you going to push the teams and are they going to have to work that weekend versus it's you know they could work the typically you know the typical timeline can they wait for their next release? So there's so many things that goes into this thought process. So that kind of brings up what is the relationship between PCERT and the AppSec team? Like, like you're already kind of describing that, you know, on the fly, we've got to change what we're doing and, and, and head a different direction. How does that relationship work? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because um, back in the day, I don't, I, I think people thought just like one team would work, right? I just have a cyber and they could cover infrastructure and they could cover product, make it go over this. And, and and the truth is, is you can't take a, a, a C-cert person and put them in a P-cert sh shoes and vice versa. Like they're actually like different thought. I mean, the process, regular process is the same of, you know, discovery of a vulnerability, triage and analysis, remediating it. Um, of course, in a PCERT world, though, you you do that disclosure because your customers need to know about that security update. Where in infrastructure, you just quickly deploy it. But you know, the there a company should be able to to much faster protect their infrastructure from like a log for J type of vulnerability com compared to like I have to now take that open source code. I need to re potentially rewrite the wrapper code that I had around it. I need to put it in multiple places, the packages, and then I need to rebuild my product and put it out there. So I think, um, you know, the bridge of the world is, is that working closely with your app tech teams and, and your infrastructure teams and all of that to make sure that you're, you're approaching that, that high profile type of issue this the same way or with the same urgency um it makes sense but you know the urgency might be a difference of like fixing it in you know in 48 hours and the infrastructure versus taking 10 to 15 days to get a product update out there 
But let, let me throw one more in, Sammy, on this, because you brought up open source management there for a second, Lisa. And this is something I see our customers really struggle with, right? Like, so they'll implement an SCA scanner. Great. I can find defects in my open source. Do I have problems? But what do you do when you find a hard bleed and you have 5,000 applications and 3,000 or 4,000 are on the shelf, not set to be touched this year there's no development environments for them right how do you tackle that problem of i happen to know that this piece of open source is strewn throughout my portfolio and how do you start to address that problem yeah i i mean i think that it, it's not it's never easy right what we do um, but for me, um, when I, I, I mean, I'm more of the product side and not the application side and the infrastructure side, but my peers in infrastructure, like having just an inventory of even your equipment can be difficult, let alone what's within it, what's within your appliances, within your applications and all of that. So, uh, and I think this is something that in general, the, the security world is struggling with. I mean, we haven't brought up the word, but you know where we're heading. When we head from the past that we're heading into the reality of where we are now, the SBOM or software bill of material is sort of the, the key the key buzzword. Um, knowing your inventory and knowing your software is is really important. Um and um and and then within that, like everything that you consume, then you have to know about the vulnerabilities and everything that you consume. So you want to be able to, if a heart bleed happens or a log for shell happens, you want to be able to, within minutes, be able to say, oh, this is how many of my applications, this is how many of my products that actually use this so that those teams could be made aware and then they could start working on resolving it and remediating it. But that that's a, it's a struggle. I mean, you know, some of our, some of our code is really old that we wrote, wrote, wrote a long time ago. Some of the people that developed it and pulled those open source and aren't aren't in the company anymore. So those tools, like you said, the scanning tools are really important. Getting our inventory is really important. Having that SBOM is really important, but it's being able to utilize an inventory for, to it, to be able to have that awareness to the teams when there's something. It's sort of a, it goes all hand in hand. So that's where I think the journey, you know, when I think about the journey from Heartbleed to where we are now, we started with, hey, you know, what's open SSL, <laughs> you know, like what even is that? Right. Um, you know, and then, oh my, wait, we use open source and product. Like, and then it was like the awareness that we use open source. And then it was like, okay, now that we have all this open source in our products, how are we going to make sure that we maintain it? Like we weren't expecting that there were going to be vulnerabilities all the time in, in, in code. Uh, I mean, our practices got better. People got better. Our, our bad guys got better. Um, and, and being able to discover these flaws. I mean, they're all just flaws and defects, right? Um, so so that, that, that SBOM is part of our, our fun world that we're living in right now, but it, it all stemmed from, you know, most likely a Hartley type of incident that made it say, hey, I better have an inventory. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the the view of a problem an issue of vulnerability versus the reality of it uh I, I think our listeners would appreciate your your view on you know 
the media has made a really big deal of X, but all technical indications are that it's not that big a deal. But, you know, one of your CEO's objectives, and I don't mean your current job, we're just talking in general here. One of your CEO's objectives is to stay off the front page of the Washington Post, you know, the old thing we always talk about. Um, how, do you, how do you explain to the executive team, to the board risk committee that, you know, it's this is the technical reality versus the hype? How do you approach that? I, I think we have... We have people who are new to the kind of position you have who would really appreciate understanding that. Yeah, I think the the like Spectre meltdown is a good example, right? I mean, the hype that was around that was just you know crazy, over the top, um, and and to be honest, it's really hard to exploit, and it actually there's not a, like a really true remediation, right? So, um, you know, the hype of that was was a really hard one, I think, on the, all the companies that were involved. And I was in NVIDIA at the time, and even though NVIDIA wasn't affected the same way, um, you know, I, I put out comms about it, and I, I made the stock go down, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, then I got a lot of attention. I, 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 I learned that there was another executive-level team that I didn't even know about. Um, but anyway, um, I, I think uh, in a general sense, it, it's hard because, there's some. Uh, I had a recent, um, a, a recent thing where there was a vulnerability in a, in an older product. Like the product was just about to be end of life, um, and you know, in a in a general sense, um, if you talk to, um, you know, an exec, they'd be like, "That's not a flagship product for us. That's hardly, you know, hardly paying attention." But the researcher was was pretty well known, and it was presented at a pretty well known conference. And we got a lot of attention. And so I had to bring in that type of that story. It, it didn't really matter about the vulnerability in a sense. It mattered about the conference. It mattered about the researcher. It mattered about the media attention that was going to come from it. And that's why it was really important for us to, to, to handle it, handle it well. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's the hard part is that, that you know, Typically, when you're dealing with addressing vulnerabilities, you're dealing with engineers and developers and even and those who are supporting getting that fixed out faster is product management. And they're thinking about, you know, their flagship product. But brand damage can happen for any vulnerability, any vulnerability, regardless if it was a flagship product or, or not. And how you handle it is extremely important. So. What I like to look at, like I was saying, is there proof of concept code? You know, what is the severity? What's the reality of the severity? Because there's a CVSS score, but then there's a real reality of what's going to happen. Is it that your own company's, you know, secret information is going to get leaked, or is it a com- you know, your 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 customer's information that's going to you know going to be um, potentially um, exploited? Um, and then. I think we also look at, you know, who's the researcher? If it's researcher reported, how did we learn about it? How easily discoverable is it? The problem when we talk about open source, much as open source is great, is that the code's publicly available. So therefore, a vulnerability in open source is more easier typically to exploit because the code's there. You could figure out how to exploit it much faster. So, um, you know, versus a proprietary code type of vulnerability where the company wrote that code 
and that code isn't shared publicly anywhere. They're only getting binaries or things like that. So you have to take all of those things into into consideration. Um, and that's why um, when you're talking to execs, you need to paint that picture. You need to say, yes, technically it's only this. However, this is the researcher. This is what's, what we've seen in the past from this type of person. They're going to, you know, they, they obviously have connections with PR. Uh, what is their Twitter, you know, feed? How many pages are paying attention? We do a lot of social um, monitoring after after we disclose any vulnerability to see, you know, what's going on in, in the media because a lot of the times it's the media. And it's gotten better um, is that I think some of the articles now are more, you know, written on a technical standpoint. It's some security expert that's behind it where they they point the reality about the vulnerability. But oftentimes in the past, it wasn't. It was just, uh, ah, it's on every computer in the world. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. And so just to drive it home for people who may be new to your kind of role, it's would you agree that it's important for them to remember that public perception has a seat at the table when it comes to you know, deciding how you're going to react to something. It's not always just a technical decision. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the customer, you know, the customer um, panic that may happen. And that's why, you know, when we get further down in uh, in the future with S-bombs and VEX and things like that and, and people utilizing that and customers having that it, it, and having good security practices like having an update cadence you know, everybody knows that patch, you know, the patch Tuesday with Microsoft, for example, if, if there's a new vulnerability in Microsoft that's sort of discovered or somebody knows about it, customers feel decently confident that the next update they're going to get is going to have that. So, you know, that cadence is really important. Having customers know when their security support life ends. So when they're not going to get security fixes anymore from you, that's another, uh, another thing. So all of those when you see the maturity of where we're heading, when you're able to give a customer a bill of material, a customer's instead of saying, oh my gosh, and calling and saying, do you use this? They're going to know if that open source is used, right? Which products have it. Then if you, you if you put on top of it VEX, they're going to know what's impacted and what's not impacted because VEX is going to be able to explain that in a programmatic way. And then... If they have an update cadence, they're going to know in, in a good probability to say, oh, well, the next update cadence is coming, you know, in a month. I'm sure I'll get the update then. Like everything is to sort of reduce that that and build the customer trust and, and reduce that that panic because customer trust is so important in our in our space. Just to peek at a, at a rat hole without actually going into it, you mentioned CVSS a couple of times. Are you using EPSS as well? We are in Dell. We are not yet, but we do. Um, we do a little bit more of I call it um, severity beyond scoring. Um, so we do look at different type of things, um, and and exploitability is 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 one aspect. Um, but we're not u utilizing it fully uh, yet in our journey. But I, I know it's starting to get a lot more light and attention. Um, for sure. So let me let me change topics for a bit and uh, for one question and then and then over to Drew. Um, what's uh, you know how is 
AI affecting the PCERT world? Is it making your job easier, harder? Yeah, yeah. so that yeah. that's going to head into the, right? So the reality of where we are now is trying to, you know, support the SBOM Vex and, and those new adventures, right? And be able to get information in our customers' hands. But the, the future definitely is the AI. So, right, I would say, it, in my opinion, right now, automation and automating more things um, is important, um, saving time. And and then that's going to feed into a lot of more of the AI type of stuff. Um, being able to determine if a vulnerability actually is applicable to you um, is a very time, a time thing. So back in the day, because we used to go back and forward here, back in the day, um, it, it didn't matter if the vulnerability affected you or not if a customer would run a scan and they saw that you had that package and even though you could try to say, no, we're not impacted um, by it, they were like, you have to fix it or I can't even, I have to shut down my machine. I have to shut down my system. Um, uh, our, our customer's knowledge about security has improved and therefore something like VEX is now more acceptable to say, yes, no, I could actually not be affected. You don't have to worry about it. We In Dell, we call them false positives. We actually put false positive articles out so that if you if a customer runs a scan and sees something and we know it's not uh, it's not applicable to us that we we put that out. Um, where the future that I do see in AI is is that it, it's going, in my opinion, it's going to help, and in a lot of ways, it's going to help with those false positives. Going to help to know if you're impacted. Right now, it's a lot of manual workload to know if you're impacted. AI should be able to do that. I also think that if AI is helping writing the code then AI is going to be able to help fix itself. So, um, right. And I, and I talk about it like a, a human, even though it, you know, it's, it's AI, but like, but in the fact is like, it, it, it should know what it wrote. And then if a new vulnerability could impact it, it should know that it's affected and then it should be able to fix itself. So, um, I do think that it's going to help with the speed of how quickly we address vulnerabilities and know the impact and the impact is really a key thing if we're sharing an SBOM with a customer and they now you know that we're using log4j there that impact assessment is really important do i need to worry or not um and so i'm, I'm really excited of the adventure i think that we're going to have with ai with knowing about you know knowing faster are we impacted or a high probability of you know if we're impacted if you go look back at you know the 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 last security advisory is maybe the last 200 of them then you could know typically what type of vulnerabilities are uh, have impacted us or what um maybe um you know um library within within a open source component that has impacted you before therefore that high probability of are you impacted again is um you know will will come out of it so so that's some of the thoughts that that go in my head and my team's head right now about about AI. So, so Lisa, for for all the vendors that are kind of hearing this hearing this episode, you know, what do you think is missing from a software or a feature kind of perspective? What you know, what's the real gap in the vulnerability management and incident response space? Well, um, I think there's a lot, um, uh, unfortunately, as much as we're getting better and better, um, but I'm also the one that's always trying to find the holes and, and close them. Um, 
So uh, vendor management um, is is one thing. Um, um, we, you know, a lot of companies have um, contracts that are old that didn't have security type of terminology in it. Um, so our our contracts with our customers are requiring um, secure good security practices. That means our vendors that we're using need security practices. So so most likely uh, any vendors that's listening is utilizing other vendors. So making sure that the vendors that you're using has good practices, making sure that the open source that you're choosing has good practices. Do they assign CVEs? Do they have um, when they're not going to do updates? When was the last time they did an update? You know, do they even have people contributing? Like those type of things, I think we didn't ask ourselves. So so a vendor should really be asking those questions when they're choosing open source. Um, the other part um, in if I, if I'm a vendor, when I think about the gaps, it's, is that it's still always a gap. We work a lot with engineering teams, but we need to make sure that we're focusing also on product managers. Um, those that are putting those release schedules together, those that are helping prioritize what's out there. What before we, you know, customers were, were always looking at features, and now they're looking at our security practices. So. Security, most security teams, unless they're doing security products themselves, don't make any money, right? We're like protectors, we're advisors, we're trying to, right. you know, make sure that, but security in a sense is now making money because if, if we're going through sales agreements, those customers are looking at our security practices. So anytime they're uh, uh, like one of the things, cause I deal a little bit with, um, like a customer security aspect when those customer inquiries come in about our practices when you know or or they're 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 questioning something or how fast we're fixing things or a log log for shell comes along and then they're you know they're calling we tons of calls coming in right all of that is like if we got to pull the business in for the product managers and that business side and those execs to hear that our customers actually care about security so that we can influence that, um, you know, when there is a high severity vulnerability versus a cool feature that the priority to address the vulnerability is actually higher. Right. So, so those are all the type of things like, uh, that I, that I think of when, if I'm a vendor of the type of things that maybe as you, you know, because I feel like in general, the security world has hit a higher level of maturity in their practices with everything that's going on um, and the executive order and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, all these frameworks that exist now that before they, they didn't. So people were sort of figuring it out. And now there's a lot of material that's out there for, for people to learn. So as we continue down our maturity journey, like those are the, it's like a different scale of type of things that we're now focusing on and gaps that we're focusing on. Right. So when we look at, at vendor management or supply chain management, right, you know, traditionally we go to make sure that the, the people that we do business with have a lock on their door and IDS deployed and maybe they do background checks on their employees, but no one's really focused on the software or the processes around the software. So how are you starting to tackle that with your own vendors that you do business with? What sort of different techniques are you using to assess that I'm dealing with, um, you know, a high quality, high secure 
or high or high secure focused um, vendor that I'm going to do business with? Yeah, so so that's a good question. So first, there's there are security terms now within our our contracts on the SCL side and and the vulnerability response and, and vulnerability management of handling their own infrastructure. So um, um, that's definitely uh, uh, within there, um, and 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 their third party management of vendors and open source is is in there too. So that's one one high level thing. But um, we do uh, questionnaires. Um, um, for, for vendors and we do a risk analysis along with that. And we basically took um, Dell's uh, SDL um, controls. There are 60 some, I think there's 64 uh, or, or, or something SDL controls, you know, including like threat modeling and um, making sure that you have security defects, security configuration guides, that you're doing pen testing, you know, you're, you're choosing the right open source, that you're doing open source, you have that inventory, like tons of controls that that we have which are common SDL practices but we took those controls and we put it into a um, you know like an assessment that we would do with our vendors so we could see how they're doing against the controls um you know so we always do the controls against our own our own products and our own releases but now we're doing it against the vendors and then when there when well, let's say there's a gap in that vendor that we're trying to utilize, um, you know, we will work with them and put deadlines on them and, and share materials. But we all almost always are referencing, you know, like things that already exist, like the P-Cert services framework right. from, from first and, you know, NIST and like things like that. Like if they're following those common practices or, 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 or acknowledge and say that they are right, then, you know, that's, that's a, a big, a big win. So, um, you know, uh, but but we definitely are doing assessments. We're definitely paying attention and we're definitely doing like a risk ranking when we uh, when we're working with with vendors. So are you doing that uh, as a self attestation from the vendor or are you guys actually doing the assessment yourself? Or are you driving that uh, internally or are you hiring third parties to do those assessments for you? So um, in, in Dell, we, um, we give it to um, and, and the vendor and they do a self-assessment, although the vendor is always, um, you know, able to bring in a third party. In some cases, uh, with some relationships and some partners, we do bring in third parties. Um, it, I think it depends on the scale uh, that we're utilizing the vendor. Um, there's always a right to audit, um, you know, uh, in yep. there. Um, in, in, in a lot of the contracts. Um, and so, um, you know, I think we're constantly trying to mature our journey in here, but, you know, getting that, um, that, but the, but you have to think like everything with the executive order and the attestations and all that stuff, like it's going to start coming and it's going to just be common knowledge to say, Hey, I'd like to see this. And, you know, from vendors, like, for even vendors that we we have like older contracts, we're reaching out and we're talking to them about, hey, we're going to want to have your S bomb. You know, we're not we're not getting any pushback. You know, um, uh, 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 from it, um, I think people know that it's important and 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 know that it's coming and are preparing for it. Um, and it's just part of the journey. I think right now, sharing is more under NDA. Um, you know, but eventually it will be. It's probably common literature that's part 
of uh, of the packages that that we put out there. So, uh, a last technical question as we start to wrap up today: um, Have you needed to create any of your own software, other than you know basic scripting and things, to to automate any of your PCERT processes because you simply couldn't buy it anywhere on the market? Uh, abs- absolutely. Um, there is no vulnerability response PCERT tooling. Nothing exists. So um, it, it definitely been a black hole for a long time. Um, some people utilize like ServiceNow um, and other tools like that, but it takes a lot of tweaking. Um, we utilize Jira um, because our engineers utilize Jira. And therefore, um, you know, um, we wanted to be in a system that they were comfortable with. Um, we spend a, a lot of, um, but we, we did spend a lot of time tweaking it to make it work for for what we needed to to make sure that it's following that that framework, that first framework that I keep talking about. We follow that framework, we follow that path, we follow that journey and that workflow, and we needed our tooling uh, our tooling to do that. So, um, and and luckily, we've been able to put more and more automation in to reduce more of the manual workload that um, was involved in, in our, especially we released a new tool this year. We had old tooling um, that, that was working, but a new one and with Jira. And uh, it's been saving us a, a significant amount of time of manual overhead from our old tool. Um, but yeah, unfortunately there's no, there's no specific tooling for, for the product side of of it there's a lot of tooling on the infrastructure side though got it done interesting okay enough of that technical stuff so uh, as we head into the next three to five years what what are some of the big cybersecurity challenges you see facing all of us on the horizon yeah i i think continuing um to to have your your trust in your you know with your customers this is really what's going to drive a, a lot of how we choose and prioritize what we're doing. Um, you know, um, I, I want to make sure that our customers know that we are listening, that we have one, that we have good practices too, that we're listening and transparency is really important to me. Um, you know, in Dell, we actually disclose, um, um, open source vulnerabilities, OS vulnerabilities that we, that affected us proprietary code vulnerabilities, whether they're discovered from a researcher internally, um, and, and not everybody does that. Um, um, a, a lot of a lot of companies um, don't disclose, especially proprietary vulnerabilities that they discovered themselves. Um, and and so um, to me, uh, transparency is key to build trust. Um, as I continue to see uh, in the future, I think having more programmatic ways to get that information in our customers' hands are important. Um, that, that's why VAX is important. Having APIs for your security advisories is going to be important. Getting that information as fast in the customer's hands. Having more automation to deploy the fixes. Can they just automatically be deployed on a, a customer system? That's really important. Um, the speed of which we pull in open source uh, or vendor um, uh, if we work with a vendor, their code, how can we pull it in faster? How can we turn it around faster? How, um, how can we automate a lot of that practices? And I think, um, you know, we talked about AI already, but AI should be able to help with a lot of that. When we have 
code that's there and we say we need to pull in this new package, it should know um, what was changed in that open, especially if it's open source, what was changed in that open source? How could it impact the code that we actually use? What type of wrapper code needs to be updated? What might have been deprecated or pulled out that now is going to break us? Like all of that takes a lot of time, but AI should speed it up significantly, which means we should be able to pull in open source and significantly faster into our our into our our products, our builds, and get it out uh, than um, those updates out uh, and package that out to our customers. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing um, those those advances because to me everything is about speed and how quickly we get that fixed into our customers' hands to best protect them. Got it. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for spending time with us. We're, we're sure your insights have helped someone address a challenge in their organization or career path. Uh, to our audience, you can find this and, and other podcasts uh, online through the Synopsys website. You can also, and you can also leave your comments there. Uh, if you'd like to contact us directly, uh, Drew or I, please send email to the next decade podcast at synopsis.com. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, and thank you very much to Dr. Lisa Bradley. We hope you'll all join us again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks. Thanks for having me.